what do you do when envy occurs? What do you do when anger happens or complaining, resentment, criticizing, and judging? How do you respond when you're mindful enough to notice things like envy, anger, complaining, criticizing, comparing, happening. Happening in here, not in somebody else. <laughs> One approach that I'm sure we hear about often here is to pay attention, be mindful, create a container of awareness that is less reactive or lets the reactivity relax and begin to notice what's going on with the envy, the complaining, the comparing, the bitterness, resentment, or whatever it may be. That can often be a valuable approach. There are times, though, when the envy or bitterness or complaining is quite strong. Maybe it's some old dynamic that keeps getting triggered and no matter how much we'd wish it didn't, it's got a lot of energy and it comes back strong and we get sucked up into it and although we might think we should be mindful, although mindfulness isn't really a should, but often we, our warped thinking turns it into a should. And sometimes it's just not realistic with some of these emotional reactions. And just trying to be mindful sometimes isn't the most effective uh, response. There are times when we can, I mean, we have to be mindful enough to notice, oh, there's envy, and it's pretty strong or persistent. And the reasons for that can vary from situation to situation. But if we're that mindful, at times it's worth trying to antidote the envy, anger, or what have you. In Buddha's teaching, there, there's quite a bit about ways to antidote the unhealthy reactive emotions, greed, fear, anger, confusion, envy, and so on. In the case of certain reactive emotions, a particularly effective antidote is called mudita. I translate this word as appreciative joy. Uh, if you come to Sunday morning chants, in one of the one of the chants in the book used here translates it as gladness. But for many years I was used to it translated as altruistic joy and at times sympathetic joy. 
and the idea behind those translations is when someone else is happy due to some wholesome success, accomplishment, something goes good in their life, they have a nice meditation, they go off on a retreat or a vacation or a workshop seminar and they get a lot out of it. And with altruism, with good feeling towards them, it's easy to feel joy at their well-being, success, accomplishment, happiness, which is the opposite of envy, resentment, bitterness, complaining, criticizing, and such things. Or it's called sympathetic joy because there's the quality of putting ourselves empathetically, sympathetically putting ourselves into their happiness and being happy with it. Currently, I like the translation appreciative joy that at least works for me in this kind of thing where appreciating their happiness. It could be partly my own mind tends to go to where the problems are. I've got this mind that likes to solve problems. And so it's a, it's a real healthy thing for me to let go of problems and focus on happiness. Notice when people are happy instead of just, oh, you're happy. <laughs> Big deal. Who's got a problem? <laughs> <laughs> so some of this may be my own uh, quirks and foibles, but to some extent, appreciating, valuing, enjoying the happiness, the well-being, the success of others. And of course, sometimes people are happy from some fairly nasty business. You know, they, they just tricked somebody out of something and they're real happy for whatever they got. Uh, that's not inappropriate. You know, they did some business deal where somebody got taken advantage of. There's a lot of that in our so-called economy. That's maybe not suitable for appreciative joy. But if somebody worked hard, was honest, did a good job, and was rewarded, that that's suitable for being happy at their success and well-being. Mudita is classically understood as an antidote for envy. If our mind focuses on a situation in a certain way, envy occurs. Similarly, if we focus on things in a certain way, anger can occur or greed or other destructive reactive emotions. If we understand that, and this is perhaps the most central principle of meditation, if we change how we pay attention, if we change what we focus on in a situation and how we focus, we change how we see it, how we feel about it, and our emotional situation changes. And that's where something like mudita, as well as metta, kindness, karuna, compassion, and things like gratitude and forgiveness come in. It's all about how we pay attention. Envy and some of the related baggage is very much about perception. 
there are two key perceptions in envy. One is perceiving someone to have something, to have a really good job or a lot of money. And it, you know, whatever we value, you may not value money, but maybe they've got a few pieces of artwork that you really think are cool. Or they've got season tickets to some football team. Some people value that. Um, or they've got really great meditation posture. Or a good babysitter. Or whatever it is you perceive they've got. And then the other key element is you perceive yourself to not have it. You know, I can't find a good babysitter. Or my kid won't do his homework. Or my husband, you know, won't put the toilet seat down. Or whatever it is. Or is it put it up? I'm maybe one of those husbands. No, I, I put it down. But then I'm on my wife because she, she only puts the seat down. I put the lid down because we've got a cat that plays and then walks on her pillows. <laughs> so sometimes women got to learn too. Anyway. Back on topic. Okay, so one perception is so-and-so has something, or it could be they, we perceive them to be something really smart, really beautiful, really talented. And then we perceive ourselves in some way as either lacking whatever they have or are, or we perceive ourselves to be somehow inferior. And so there are these dual perceptions, and that means there's comparison between the two. If there is just an awareness of, yeah, you know, my meditation practice is a little weak, okay, then you work with that. But if you start perceiving someone else as, oh, they've got, you know, and maybe you don't, it's perception, right? It may not be true. It may be assumption, um, fabrication. But if you believe it enough, then we get this dynamic going. And of course, if someone is good at something that we value, we could appreciate it. But sometimes, by comparing with ourselves and we feel somewhat inferior or lacking, then envy can occur. So there are these, this two-sided perception and comparison. Envy only occurs with comparing mind. And it, it very much involves a sense of me. It's a certain kind of egoism. And it can be bitter. Some people, a lot of their anger comes from envy. Sometimes it comes from fear or elsewhere. Sometimes it's just straight on anger. But sometimes the anger arises out of envy. Why does he have that? He doesn't deserve that. I deserve that. But I don't have it. That's not fair. We make up our stories, and we get bitter, and we resent. And it's kind of nasty business. So if we wish to work with these kind of reactive emotions, mudita can be a skillful practice. In the guided meditation, I tried to mention a few times that it's a natural capacity. In Buddhist understanding, things like kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, forgiveness, gratitude, 
these are all capacities we've already got. Sometimes we meet attitudes and beliefs that, you know, people are fundamentally selfish and rotten, and then it's, it can seem impossible. And sometimes we fall into self-deprecating attitudes about ourselves. But if, if, which I tried to do a little bit in the guided meditation, if, if we do a careful review of our lives, we'll notice that there are events, people, situations where gratitude, appreciation come easily. For me, um, we have ducks, and they're fun. Just they quack, 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 you know, and the way they do it. Or uh, the friends I'm staying with here, they've got three, I can't say it right, Shih Tzu or some kind of little Asian-type dogs, and they're real eager and smiley and cute and peppy. You know, it's hard, unless, you know, one of them bit you and gave you rabies, it's hard to. <laughs> not feel some joy, appreciation, something about these cute little fuzzy creatures. And they're not chewing my couch up, so. <laughs> <laughs> so if we look, we'll find there have been many occasions in our lives for kindness, or someone was in pain and Compassion naturally, spontaneously occurred. And the same with mudita, appreciative joy. When we recognize and appreciate, respect this capacity that's in each of us, it makes it easier then to see our potential to practice with it. And then things, there are ways such as some of the things I tried to offer in the guided meditation where we evoke appreciative joy and then get used to it, get familiar with it, get more comfortable with it. And in that process, we come to understand it better, how it works, how to summon it up. And with these sorts of things, with Practice. Practice breeds familiarity. And then the ability to evoke it becomes more and more simple. It can be a snap of the fingers, which is partly the role of mindfulness. Um, it's an aspect of mindfulness that's not so often talked about in North America. But in, in original Buddhist teachings, one role of mindfulness is to recall. So if, if there's a capacity in us for, say, appreciative joy, and in a situation where appreciative joy fits, it's mindfulness that brings it to mind. That's, that's what mindfulness does. It brings something to mind when you're meditating and bringing attention to the breath, the breath's going on all the time. Mindfulness brings it to mind. And when we do that over and over, it keeps it in mind. And you can, any capacity in yourself can be brought, brought up through mindfulness. It can be recalled, which is a literal translation one possible translation of the term sati. So it takes some practice, some exploration, familiarity. What is this stuff? And then we get used to it. And one of the uh, bonuses is it's, it's pleasurable. Metta is joyful. Compassion, it's kind of bittersweet because there's the sadness of suffering involved, but it's 
it has a rather profound joy to it, different than when we're overwhelmed by pain and suffering. And mudita is, you get to be happy about happiness, about beauty, about intelligence and kindness. It's, it's a happy thing. And, you know, a lot of us are stressed out by economic realities, healthcare, aging parents, Alzheimer's, really ugly, obnoxious politics. I mean, I know in Minneapolis you've got some good ones and some real Lulus, <laughs> or at least in the suburbs. Um, <laughs> I'm from Chicago, and uh, we've got Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> Though I live in Wisconsin, and we've got some doozies there. But uh, okay, some of my prejudices came out. We'll put those aside. <laughs> But there's some serious stuff going on, like climate change. And to balance that, sympathetic, appreciative joy can be really helpful. I've come to see it as, um, well, appreciative joy is the third of the four Brahma Viharas, the divine dwellings, or the homes of the gods would be a literal translation as well. Uh, metta, kindness, friendliness is the basic foundation. And then in the face of pain and suffering, metta becomes compassion. The sincere wish to be of service to the pain and compassion within whatever capacities we have. And in the face of joy, happiness, well-being, metta becomes sympathetic, appreciative joy. And I, I come to see that we need a healthy balance between compassion and appreciative joy. And some folks struggle with compassion, and one way to support compassion is perhaps to bring more appreciative joy in as well, especially if we're critical-minded or we spend a lot of time listening to NPR and problems, or we work for social service agencies, or We've got an alcoholic in the family or somebody with cancer, you know, a lot of stuff happens. So to bring appreciative joy into the mix, not frivolously or in a self-indulgent way, but in a practical, healthy way to nurture ourselves and to bring more joy into a world that badly needs it. We've got a lot of fake, you know, superficial TV glitzy joy kind of stuff with almost zero staying power and very little meaning. So to bring a more meaningful, lasting joy into the world's a great gift. And so that's part of the role of mudita. So we can use it to overcome things like envy, both a spontaneous outburst of envy, bitterness, complaining, criticizing, as well as, for some of us, an ongoing pattern of envy. You know, the grass is always greener in their yard. Why me? You know, poor me. I've worked so hard, but blah, blah, blah. And why do they always get the benefits? So if, if we've built up some of these patterns, over time, mudita can shift energy that we, we keep slipping into channeling energy and attention into some of the unhealthy stuff. The more we channel into things like mudita, 
the less it's available to feed the unhealthy stuff like envy. So that's one of the benefits of mudita. The second is it's just healthy. It's happy. It's healing for ourselves and the people around us. A third um, role for mudita, one that's mentioned a lot in the early Buddhist teachings, is mudita along with the other divine dwellings, kindness, compassion, and equanimity, can be a heart's release, a boundless heart's release. And I, I tried to get into this a bit at the end of the guided meditation. This morning we chanted from one of the passages that um, describes this in terms of each of the four divine dwellings. The process, as I understand it, as I explore it, is once we can evoke, in this case, appreciative joy, and the same works with kindness, and even though gratitude's not mentioned, I think it works with gratitude. But I'll, I'll focus on appreciative joy. When we can evoke appreciative joy and then rest in it, the first thing is to focus primarily on the appreciative joy and not people, situations, events, characteristics that may have evoked it. So in the guided meditation, I brought up some scenarios where it's easy, perhaps, to evoke, and then trained it a bit on some more difficult situations. But for the boundless heart's release, any, any source of mudita that's fairly easily accessible, then when we bring that to mind and hold it in the heart, and by the way, in early Buddhism, heart-mind's the same thing. It's not like you bring it to the mind and then move it down. Um, in, in Buddhist teachings, the heart doesn't have a physical location, nor does mind. They're the same thing in that, in that thought world. Anyway, so bringing it into the heart, using mindfulness, of course, and then nurturing it, sustaining it, so that awareness, attention rests in the appreciative joy. And once it sort of stabilizes a bit, takes root, lasts a while, then it can begin to open up and expand. If it kind of fades out, then evoke it again. And it may take a while. Um, it's now the time of year where we're using our wood stove. And sometimes you try to light a fire, and we were a little we weren't careful enough stocking up wood, and we've got some of the dry wood mixed up with the not-so-dry wood, so we light a fire, and then 10 minutes later it's out. So you light it again, light it again, and eventually it, it's, it stays. So things like these practices can be that you, you evoke it, it fades, you evoke it again. And that's, that's, what, that's how practice goes. And when it, it starts to stick, not in a clingy, cloying way, but it just hangs around, then that space, that attitude, that feeling can begin to open up. 
the early discourses speak of the directions. So I use that to sort of beam it out. And I see this as happening through imagination. It's just taking this sense and feeling of appreciative joy and just kind of beaming it outward. I'm not very visual, but some people will do it, you know, waves or rays, colored rainbow light, all beautiful, appreciative joy going out there in front, and then you beam it behind, or it could be waves rippling outward. Whatever works. Um, all around, left, right, all the directions, above, below, and then it's kind of like there's a center, sort of, out of which this is opening up and opening up. But then, being attention rides the opening. So attention doesn't stay here. It's, this becomes the boundless release of heart the more it opens and opens. If we stay here, some of us, like me, I remain very aware of the body, and then that easily evokes me. But when the appreciative joy is opening up outward, some sense of the body may still be here. But the sense of me regarding body is much less, and the more the the more it's about appreciative joy, the less it's about me doing it. At some point, the me gets really transparent or even drops. And that's when it becomes a release or a liberation. The Pali word is jeto vimuti, liberation of mind, of heart. And it's called boundless because, for a couple reasons. One, when our kindness, compassion, or mudita is based on a specific situation, context, event, it's bounded by that context, person, event. But when it's no longer dependent on a specific um, sense experience or thought, then it's, it becomes boundless. Another, it's also described as immeasurable. You, you can't measure it. And that means in this boundlessness, I'm not talking about mathematical or cosmological infinity. It's just open it up really big. And if you find yourself worrying, is it big enough, you're distracted. Just big. That's good enough. If it feels big, and when you're not part of the big, then it's big enough. It's, it's not, um, you know, you don't have to have your measuring tape or your hire a surveyor. Is it big enough? Just, it's all subjective. So open it up, and it can become a release. A release from envy, from anger, from resentment, from bitterness. And it's a release from me and mine. So some thoughts on mudita. Hopefully, if you've never heard about it before, now you know something about it. And if you've heard of it before, now you've got a little more to work with. And may you enjoy exploring. Yes? So um, my name is Ben, and an example that you used uh, with envy um, the other person is happy and you're generating appreciative joy. Um, if the other person, and I'm, I'm using an example, just another person, um, black thing. If the other person is 
um, angry and unhappy and sad, how, how do you generate appreciative joy? In that situation, the, we work with compassion. Because if they're in pain, if they're suffering, and anger is suffering, then, then we would speak of compassion. So it's happiness when they're, when they're happy. And so that's why it's sometimes called sympathetic joy. You participate in their happiness or their well-being. Any comments, insights, questions, sharing? I uh, just had a question. Uh, the, I thought it was like following along until that last part um, we were kind of explaining. So with the mudita, are you just trying to just send it out, or is there like a feedback where you're trying to feel it at the same time to sort of feel that that sort of sounded like you had that connection where there was the person and you and you saw this comparison? So is there, are you just sending it out, or are you kind of trying to feel sort of like a more immersive energy? In the last part that I ended with, both in the guided meditation and the talk, it's more just opening it up. So sending, opening. But in, in the guided meditations, especially the early part, it's about feeling it so you get familiar with it. And we need the familiarity to have it more and more accessible. Same with kindness and so. So part of these practices, feeling it and feeling it mindfully so we recognize it. And then have the capacity to bring it in. You know, if a situation, somebody who we, we tend to go by at work and we ignore them, don't pay much attention. So to stop and notice something res worth respecting and appreciating about them, and then feeling some happiness about it. And you might even choose then to, in your mind, direct it towards the person or even say something. Some people are great at that. I think actually he's right that what you're trying to do there is make a connection. That it's, it's very nice that it's coming out of you, but isn't how you're doing it using multiple connections and versus having a circle? What kind of connection? That you that's connecting you to the other person. That's a very close thing. That somebody has a good meditation posture or somebody has a good meditation posture. And it's a very positive way to feel it instead of. Mm -hmm. But you're making a positive circle of energy. Sure. Sure. I don't know if that's what you meant. <laughs> yes. Um, I've done a significant amount of work on jealousy, not because I wanted to, but because <laughs> when I was 18, I went to New York for an acting school. Highly competitive. The beauty factor is huge, and it was. It just became, you know, jealousy can just just eat you alive, and. It just became apparent to me that uh, over time that if I didn't actually just love, uh, just love what I was doing and have the love be bigger than the idea of competing, I had to undo that. Um, it just I, I would have to quit what I loved. So over time, that became uh, something that just happens. If people run past you to Broadway hundreds of times, you just realize at some point talent needs to fly and that's okay you know and so but uh, but but the experience you say about the body being self um, the feeling of jealousy uh, sitting in it is in the body and the feeling of love is in the body and for me the feeling of boundlessness of feeling 
sort of space as an extension and all that things. It is, it does come through the body. So I guess my question is, you say that attention to the body, uh, uh, giving the body lots of uh, credence is limiting you to self. But as I feel it, the deeper I go into the breathing of the body, the deeper I feel the breathing coming from all different places that are not the body. So I think of the body as being a portal more towards the not self and the unconditional. Not like if I, I'll be self-involved if I pay attention to how the world mm -hmm. comes to my body. Yeah. Right. Um, I didn't quite say what you said I said. Oh, <laughs> But a couple things, the way various people experience and relate to their bodies and emotions. A lot of people talk very much about the emotions as physical. Some people don't experience it that way. So there, I'm, my point is there's a fair amount of variety. And so it's not fair for me or you to insist it's, it's this way or that way. But it seems to me there's a fair amount of variety. So some of what I said was primarily how I experience it. I'm always very aware of my body. And often that awareness evokes my sense of me. I didn't say it needs to be that way for others. It's just a report of what often happens with me. Um, and if one experiences things like envy or mudita as being in the body, fine. That's, that's not a problem. But however we open it up, and it's, the practice isn't to leave the body behind. It's to leave egoism behind. And if So maybe that's enough. But the body's not the problem. But it can be our attitudes or to the body or, in my case, just I'm, I easily identify with my body. But as kindness opens up, that identity drops. Identities drop quite easily. And in, could be different for you and for others. There's a lot of this territory, there's a lot of variety. Appreciative joy or Rajita and kind of more of an excited joy. Because in, I mean, in my experience, I can tend to get but that feeling is so much different than um, the more impulsive, balanced joy. And I feel that they're very close. Yeah. And, and sometimes, like in, in Buddhist terminology, there's something called piti, which is translated rapture. And it tends to be somewhat excitable. And so, Often when there's, when something first happens, if it's experienced as beneficial, positive, and insight, or at first when metta is flowing, there might be some excitement. The, or, the original burst and it's cool and you know. And then with familiarity it mellows a bit. So that kind of excitement I don't see as a problem. It's just, oh, you know, notice it and don't worry about it and it can relax. But sometimes we get hooked in the excitement. Many of us like to caffeinate ourselves. And there's, it's, you know, we're a culture with lots of stimulation going on and it can be a something we all, a lot of us are prone to. So we can easily get hooked into the excitement and try to keep it going. 
And so that's where I see the problem is. Does that connect with what you're talking about? Yeah, I'm just curious what, like I've heard other teachers talk about it. I just and I guess the piece is, if it's the kind of spontaneous excitement of something that comes when something wholesome and beneficial occurs, it need not be a problem. I don't think it's, and it's just, we learn in practice to let it flow, let it bubble. But it's, it's the natural course of excitement. It's kind of like waves. They come, and then they peak, and they dissipate. And we learn to ride that. And with familiarity, it tends to mellow over time. So I think it becomes problematic when there's craving for the excited part, where we haven't come to appreciate the more mellow joy. So it's partly a matter of um, preference, consciously, more likely unconsciously. We want the buzz and not the quieter, more sustainable um, aspects of joy. Sometimes when I practice metta or kaona, it feels good. So I find myself focusing more on the feeling good and they get me a bit attached to that feeling. Right, right. So uh, what do I do? <laughs> Notice that and go back to the metta. And it's similar to what we were just saying. In good practice, there's a lot of positive, peaceful, healthy, feeling good stuff. And part of skillful practice is to be aware of that, appreciate it, but not focus on it. And we don't have to push it away. The Buddha, in the early Buddhist teachings, these are acknowledged as things that support further and higher practice. But when they become our goals, then they're distractions. And we get frustrated because that, that kind of craving gets in the way. Where, so over time, we learn that if we just practice skillfully, these things happen more and more without us wanting them to happen. And there are discourses where the Buddha says that kind of thing about a number of things, including rapture and tranquility and joy that one need not wish, may I be joyful. Just do this, and joy will happen. You, you don't have to seek rapture. Just do this, and it, it will happen. And that's in a, within a perspective that these are all natural capacities. They're not foreign to any of us. Yes? Perhaps it's a follow up or attachment statement. Engaging in general joy with others for the gain or even for the wholesome consideration and non wholesome consideration. How do you put that into practice without discussion or Um. Well, partly. You know, judgment is now a bad word in Buddhist circles. We shouldn't judge. But so I could play a semantic thing and say, OK, what we need is discernment. <laughs> but another way to put it is there's this, there are certain judgments that are necessary. This is harmful and destructive. 
to recognize that, call it judgment, call it recognition, discernment, mindfulness. We need that ability. And so I've, I hear at times a kind of muddledness around judgment. I'm not speaking to you specifically, but it comes up a lot. So call it what you like, but it's necessary to be able to tell the difference between what's harmful and what's healthy. And I don't mind calling it a kind of judgment. But the difference is it's not judging a person. So I'm not saying, oh, she's really good. And this person is bad because of envy. But noticing that envy is destructive, anger is destructive, certain behaviors are destructive without identifying a person with those things. So a lot of it is that identification of a behavior, a pattern, an emotion, or whatever, certain ways of thinking that are, are harmful and destructive. And I think this is an important issue in our society because there's a certain kind of permissiveness that tolerates really bad behavior, you know, because of a kind of muddled relativistic thinking. But, and then there's another side that's going around condemning all kinds of people. And a middle way is not condemning people, but, but trying to find appropriate ways to say certain things are, are health, unhealthy and destructive, like running around condemning each other. <laughs> so, so there's a middle way in there. I hope what I said helps clarify it a bit. It's 8.30. Is that our closing time? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.